You are listening to the Center Church Podcast. Center Church is an unapologetic urban church in the heart of Richmond for the heart of Richmond. Our mission is simple, to empower people towards a life-giving journey with Jesus. Enjoy the podcast. to join the likes of Stephen and Drew and Anna and Allison and Jamail and all the others who have shared. Uh, this morning, I'm actually going to share something that I've really been um, wrestling with, uh, to be honest with you. Uh, we've been talking about the gifts of God, um, the gifts that God gives to us freely and, and that we get to um, cherish and, and wear, um, but the gifts that we're then invited to turn around and give to others. Um, So far, we've talked about the communion table, this gift that God gives us to invite us to commune with him at the table. Um, But we also talked about faithfulness and patience. We've talked about love is grace. Um, And this week, I'm going to be talking about kindness um, and actually going to be kind of looking at kindness as it relates to loving our enemies. Um, And I actually had this whole message planned out on Monday. Um, I had the whole thing written out and ready to go, um, excited uh, to share Um, And then on Tuesday, there was a shooting in Texas at an elementary school. Um, And all of a sudden, kindness and loving your enemies felt really different. Um, I realized on Tuesday that my message would really contain most of the same content and most of the same um, spirit, but it would carry a much heavier weight than I intended. And if I'm being honest this morning, um, between the shooting in Buffalo and the shooting in Texas and the report that came out that one of the largest Christian denominations in America has been systematically um, covering up sexual abuse and protecting the abusers, um, I've been feeling really angry. Um, I've been in a place where uh, I haven't been kind. Um, I haven't felt very loving toward those who I see in opposition to what God is doing in our world. Um, So I was going to talk about how being kind and loving our enemies was really hard, um, but I didn't expect to have to talk about it while I'm in a space where it feels so acutely hard. Um, But I'm kind of hoping that that's the point. Uh, I'm kind of hoping that we're supposed to talk about this and grapple with it and agonize over it um, because it's hard and especially when it's hard. So all that to say, before we jump into it this morning, I just wanted to acknowledge the weight that I'm feeling, that I'm sure that you guys are feeling um, as we we look into this. Um, The Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Romans, tells us that the gift of God is life, but that the wages of sin is death. In the same letter, Paul tells us that while we were enemies of God, Christ died for us. Enemies of God sounds really extreme, and people often take this to mean that we were somehow in our very being created to be enemies of God. Um, But I think that Paul was actually talking about something much more basic. I think that Paul was saying that our inclination to go against God, our own myopia and our self-centeredness and our greed, often puts us in direct opposition to what God is trying to do in our world. We want what feels best for us, so who cares who we hurt? We want our people to thrive, so who cares about the injustice that that causes to others? We want privilege for ourselves and our communities, so who cares about what inequity that creates? But if we keep looking out for me and us and our people and keep ignoring the marginalized and the oppressed and the hurting and really everyone else, we're setting ourselves against the very kingdom of justice and equity and safety that God wants for all of God's children a world that's undergirded and wrapped up in beautiful, unconditional love. And when we do that, the consequences are death. 
their pain, sorrow, division. But that isn't everything. That may be the wages. That may be the thing that we're working toward. But God steps in and gives us a gift. And God's gift to us is a life that transcends all that. It's a life that's eternal. God gives us this life in the midst of all of the death that we see around us, all the death that we feel around us. And then we're invited to give that gift to others. Today we're going to look at a few verses from the Sermon on the Mount. Um, For those of you who um, maybe are new to the faith, the Sermon on the Mount was a sermon that Matthew sticks right at the beginning of his gospel, right as Jesus is beginning his ministry. Um, It's three whole chapters, um, and it's a really, really challenging um, section. Throughout its verses, we're challenged over and over again to reject our conventional wisdom, um, to reject what comes easy to us, and to strive for what kind of seems like an impossible ideal. But what's really interesting is that Jesus wasn't just some other teacher who was calling us to an ideal, um, but rather Jesus was the Messiah, the incarnate God, who was calling us to what Stanley Hauerwas calls the reality of the new age made possible in time. Jesus was describing a way of life that he himself embodied and would embody all the way to the cross, around which he was building a new community, a new reality that would be made possible in time. It's not a list of requirements as much as it is a description of the life of a people who are gathered by Jesus and around Jesus, the one who offers this gift of life in the midst of death. It's a picture of the kind of community that God is building. So this was Matthew's preface to the story of Jesus' life, a sermon that describes who Jesus is and who God is calling all of us to be. This morning, we're going to look at Matthew 5, 43 through 46, which Crystal just read, but I'm going to read it again. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? Throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is quoting conventional wisdom. Um, often directly from the Hebrew scriptures, and then he's flipping it on its head. He says things like, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but I say if someone hits you, turn to them the other cheek. Um, You've heard it said not to murder, but I say if you have anger in your heart, that's just as bad as murder. Um, He says if someone asks you to carry their pack for a mile, go with them an extra mile. If someone asks you for your jacket, give them your shirt too. Here Jesus has said, you've heard love your neighbor and hate your enemy. The concept of loving your neighbor is central to Old Testament law, Uh, but it had begun to be interpreted by a lot of the people who followed the faith at the time uh, as a command to love people who are like us, to love your neighbor, Um, but therefore permission was given to hate all the people who aren't like us. Since love here is a command, I think it's really important um, to look at what does it mean to do love. What does love as an action look like as opposed to just a feeling or a sentimentality? Um, And when I think of what love should look like, I often look at um, Paul's words in his letter to the Corinthians where he says, love is patient, love is kind, love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable. It keeps no record of wrongs. It doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, and love never ends. When I hear that description of love, I'm struck by how hard it is to truly love our neighbors, 
um, our coworkers, people who we go to church with, uh, people who practice the same faith as we do, even people who live in our house with us. Um, the command to love our neighbors, the people who are like us, is hard enough. But here, Jesus is calling us not to just love those people, um, the people who it's slightly easier to love, but to love our enemies, people who stand in opposition to us, people who stand in opposition to what we believe, the very people who are doing everything they can to thwart what we're called to be and do. Jesus says to love people who it's far easier to hate. Jesus is calling his disciples and through Matthew's gospel, us, to a way of life that doesn't come easy. We're used to loving the people who love us, um, to loving those who are in our club or in our party or on our team or who think and act like us, those who are easy to love. But Jesus is saying, don't just love those people. Don't just love the people that are easy. Love your enemies. Love the people you're most naturally predisposed to hate because God does. The sun rises on the evil and the good. Rain comes to nourish the fields of the righteous and the unrighteous. I don't like this. <laughs> this comes at great irritation to me. Um, but God doesn't preference people based on how good or how bad they are. God loves us all. So God tells us to love our enemy. And what's truly subversive about this is that loving our enemy is impossible. Now, I'm not just saying that it's kind of hard or it's going to be difficult or, um, you know, you got to really, really work at it. What I'm saying is, like, you actually can't love your enemy. It's impossible. Remember, love is patient. Love is kind. Love isn't envious. It's not irritable. It doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing. It rejoices in truth. It bears. It forbears. That's not the way you treat an enemy. If you have an enemy, you're in conflict. You're at odds. You're at war. And love isn't the rule of war. You're not patient with someone that you're battling. You're not kind. You're keeping records of wrongs. You have no hope or forbearance for your enemy. So what's so subversive about this is that if you want to love your enemy, if you really want to obey God's call here, your enemy has to cease to be your enemy. You might be wondering if we're going to get to kindness. <laughs> and what does loving your enemies have to do with kindness? We've been looking at the fruits of the Spirit as gifts, right? Gifts that God has given us and that we turn around and give to others. And one of these fruits is kindness. And what's really interesting to me about the word kindness is how similar it is to the word like kindred or that's one of my kind or as a good Southerner might say, that's my kin. These words talk about people who belong to us, people who are a part of us. My kin is my family. A kindred is someone who I really get and who really vibes with me. My kind are people who are like me. To treat someone with kindness is to treat someone like they're one of us, like they're our own, like they belong. To love someone is to invite them into our family, to make them our kin. And if someone is one of our own, a part of our family, our kin, they're by definition not our enemy. I recently heard a story about someone whose house had been ransacked. They came home, and there was paint all over the walls. Uh, the person had taken pictures and art and taken them off the wall and broken them and ripped them and destroyed them. They had taken stuff out of drawers and emptied them out everywhere. They had actually taken food out of the pantry and the fridge and dumped it out. I mean, the house was just a mess. So you can imagine if you went home today after church and that was the scenario that you found, um, you would be utterly angry 
you would feel violated, you would be, um, you know, you would want that person found and you'd want that person persecuted to the full extent of the law. You'd want to call the police and make sure that they're persecuted. But imagine, or prosecuted, maybe persecuted too. Um, but imagine the same scenario where you come home and your house is a wreck and everything has been destroyed and everything's off the walls, but then you look down and it's your three-year-old child that's done it. That makes the scenario a little bit different, doesn't it? You still feel the same anger and grief and shock, but because you see your child as one of you, as a part of your family, the remedy that you seek is really different. Rather than seeing your child locked up for the rest of their life, you shift to wanting to understand what caused your child to do this, what systems you might need to put in place to make sure that this doesn't happen again. Uh, but mostly you think about how can you restore this relationship with your child um, and how can you find a way to help them? And that's because they're our kin, and our response is kindness. We have a choice when we're confronted with the death and destruction and abuse and division in our world. Do we choose to engage the perpetrators of that destruction as enemies, or do we choose to engage them as part of God's family, as part of our family? When someone does something that hurts us or offends us, or when we hear these, inc- these terrible stories on the news, we often use words like monster, or that's inhuman, or this person's a scumbag. See, our first instinct is to make someone an other, to strip them of any notion that we share humanity or identity as God's beloved. They're not one of us, to be sure. And when we other someone, they're a lot easier to hate. That's how wars are started. That's how genocide is justified. This is how laws are passed and systems are perpetuated and developed to keep one group of people down because those people aren't like us. That's what we tell ourselves. Brene Brown says, it's really hard to hate up close. It's very hard to be unkind up close because it's when we get close that we see our shared humanity. We see another broken person created in the image of a loving God. We see someone's child, we see someone's parent, we see someone's partner, we might even see a little bit of ourselves. So we do everything we can to keep our distance, because if we get too close, we run the risk of breaking that spell of otherness. Now, I acknowledge that there is darkness and evil and division and abuse and arrogance and injustice all over this world. This was one of those weeks where you didn't have to look very hard to find it. It's real, and it's hard, and we should be unsettled, and we should be angry when we see this kind of terrible violence in our world. We as human beings are capable of doing really heinous things to each other out of our self-interest or the pursuit of power or to get a little bigger piece of the pie. But our challenge is to separate the action from human beings. Paul says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the evil and darkness in this world. There's no greater picture in my mind of this kind of love for enemies that we've been talking about than the crucified Christ. Miroslav Volf, who's a Yugoslavian theologian, says at the heart of the cross is Christ's stance of not letting the other remain an enemy and of creating space for the offender to come in. The arms of the crucified are open, a sign of a space in God's self and an invitation for the enemy to come in. 
I really uh, struggled with this this week. When the news kept breaking, my natural responses weren't kind. They weren't measured. They weren't loving. I was angry. I lashed out. I hated. At one point, Hadley told me to quit looking at my phone. But the problem with this kind of hate for hate, anger for anger, violence for violence, is that it's self-perpetuating. If I hurt someone who hurts me, I give them permission to hurt me back for hurting them. And then they hurt me, and I hurt them back. And we enter into a never-ending loop where until one of us is either dead or one of us steps outside of the cycle. The call to love our enemies is the call to quit having enemies, to quit fighting against flesh and blood, to break the cycle. Yeah, we have to speak truth to power. We have to advocate for the poor and the powerless. We have to demand change in our hearts and our communities because we battle this evil, this darkness. And like Christ, we must make space for the other to cease to be our enemy. To the people who commit the acts of violence, who abuse, who exclude, who build and maintain systems of injustice, we must never cease to resist their violence, to resist their abuse, to resist their exclusion, to resist their injustice, but we must break those cycles by countering their hate with love. And I'm going to use my voice, and we're going to use our voice to continue to advocate and proclaim the coming kingdom. But we must learn to see these perpetrators of these acts as God sees them. We must learn to oppose them in love. We must seek to understand and look for ways to bring them in, not push them away. Because we're not battling against them. Miroslav Volf, who I quoted earlier, says that there can be no justice without the will to embrace. If we don't imagine a world where we're all reconciled on the other side, what we're pursuing is not actually justice. We're imagining a world where our team has won, where we're on top, but we remain enemies. Our desire to bust up the evil and the systems and the sin that plague us and our families and our city and our nation and our world is not the end goal. The end goal is the reconciliation of all God's children to God and to each other. So we bust up the evil systems and we bust up the darkness and we resist the abuse and we resist the sin to get to there. There's two dominant symbols in the Christian faith. There's the cross and there's the empty tomb. The cross is really scary. The cross represents the hope of the world, mocked, beaten, and dying. All of the hope and enthusiasm about this new kingdom completely deflated. And I think that's how oftentimes it feels when we face our enemy. Things don't look good on Friday night. Um, and more than a few of Jesus' disciples thought that this whole thing was a failed experiment. But we have another symbol. We have an empty tomb. And that's our hope that even in the darkness of Friday night, the gift of life is coming. The wages of our sin is death, but the gift of God is life. The wages of our hatred and our self-centeredness, our injustices, the harm that we do to ourselves and to others is death and destruction and pain and sorrow. But God has stepped into that and broken the cycle and offers the gift of life. And we're called to bear Christ's image and offer the gift of life to all in the midst of the cycles of death. In the midst of some really hard times, some really hard weeks, some really hard seasons, we're called to break the cycle and cross the line, to hand out the fruit of kindness, to remind our enemies that we're not enemies at all, and to invite everyone, our enemies included, into the kingdom that we're working towards.
As I close this message, I want to share a prayer with you guys. Um, it's a prayer that is really helpful for me in the moments of despair and hopelessness when I don't feel it, when I'm angry. Um, it's a pretty familiar prayer um, by St. Francis of Assisi, who was a 13th century monk. Uh, many of you have probably heard it, but I think that it's so helpful in creating for us a space to pray for our enemies and to begin pointing our feet um, where we should go in the middle of these seasons. Um, I'm going to ask Landon to go ahead and start playing uh, while we just take a couple of minutes of silence, and then I'm going to pray these words over us. Lord, make us an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let us sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there's despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. And where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that we might not so much seek to be consoled as to console to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it's in giving that we receive, it's in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it's in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen.